Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Galen Hare. He is the owner of Insurance Claim HQ, which is a property casualty insurance attorney operating in more than seven states in across Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia, Florida, and Mississippi. And through property casualty insurance claims, Galen and his team have helped over 800 families rebuild their homes and businesses. And they have dedicated their practice to fighting for the rights of policyholders when they experience a loss due to fire, flood, hurricane, or from the insurance company not keeping their word. Galen has also been rated a super lawyer's rising star and has been voted one of the national trial lawyers top 100. So Galen, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So Galen, can you share a little bit more about your background, how you decided to create this company, found the company, and then how you got started with you know, working with real estate investors? Yeah. So I think it was more a necessity than anything else. So I originally was a musician, which is probably a bit odd for most lawyers, I guess. I was doing classical music up in Boston. I was really enjoying what I was doing, but not necessarily on a specific path in life. And then Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and I just kind of felt like I needed to be there. So I was, and it really kind of changed. I think we all, depending on what happens to us at a certain age, if that kind of hits us at that really formative time, it will drastically change kind of the direction that our life was going. So for me, coming down to New Orleans like 22 was a really, really big deal and kind of changed the trajectory of my career and my life. I was surrounded by a lot of people that were in law school and that were doing things. So I think when you kind of combine being around all these legal professionals with being around just mass destruction as a result of a natural disaster, it kind of became natural and apropos that I would eventually work my way towards helping victims of natural disaster through a legal profession, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And like you, exactly like we said, you know, sometimes these experiences, things that we've experienced and seen really shape how we, you know, formulate and look at how to proceed with our lives going forward. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? If I were eight years older and I'd been 30 when Katrina had happened, what would I have done differently, right? I probably would have been settled down. I probably would have had a family. I might've donated some money, but it wouldn't have necessarily changed my entire life, right? So I think sometimes our formation is partially just about where we're at mentally and emotionally when something happens. So I'd love to ask also, what instrument did you play as you were doing your music career? I sang opera. Oh, you sing opera. Oh, that's, oh, I'm not going to ask you to give us a little example here, but 
<laughs> do you still get to practice at least or like, uh, do you still enjoy it? No, you know, I'll be really honest. I still have this very, very deep appreciation for the arts. I'm at this, I was at this really cool age a few years ago where all my colleagues were kind of starting to make it big and perform in really big places. Now I'm reaching that age where they're stopping, which is really funny. They're kind of going into teaching and becoming professors at universities, not in a negative way, but I feel like it's one of those things that when you leave that chosen profession and that schooling, you say, oh, of course I'm going to keep it up and I'm going to do it for fun. And then you just don't. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing. I think you all would prefer to not hear me try to sing 10 years after I quit. But, but, you know, with that said, I guess more than 10 years, uh, geez, it must have it been a decade and a half now. But with that said, yeah, obviously the intent was, oh, I'll keep it up and I'll keep singing and maybe I'll do chorus and some operas or something. But you get busy, especially building a firm like this, which has been just a massive undertaking. And you don't, in my experience, you rarely end up keeping up with those things. Yeah, I think just life starts to get ahead of you and things just start to happen. And then things that you used to love, they get maybe not necessarily replaced, but other things that you find that you love and are passionate about also start to encompass your life as well. And so you're just continuing to grow and finding other things that you like to do as well. Not necessarily meaning that you stop loving what you used to do, but you're finding other things to add to you know your life as well. That's exactly right. I think a change in direction doesn't necessarily mean that you've changed. And so these days people tend to personalize everything and take things very, very personally and very directly, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. So when you went to visit and you saw the impact of what Hurricane Katrina had on those families out over there, those people, why did you decide to pursue property insurance particularly instead of other different avenues within law? Yeah. So that's a great point. So obviously after Katrina, the legal issues were not just people not getting paid for insurance. I suppose that's the obvious one, but there were massive social justice issues that were created. Candidly, a lot of those don't have a habit of paying bills, which is unfortunate um, because maybe some of those things are needed even more so than help with property insurance. But for me, I got really into the construction side of things. I'd never been a contractor I mean, I think I probably would want to be a contractor if I was going to start over my life, but I'm very into what construction materials are used, how they're used. And that in a kind of neat way plays into that area of law where I get to combine what I like about the law, which is figuring out what the legal arguments are, interpreting the contract of insurance, figuring out what my client's rights are. And I get to combine that with kind of my interest in construction and make sure that the insurance companies are paying to have things properly put back together, which candidly is usually where the rub is, is that that word properly. A lot of carriers just don't want to pay for it to be done the right way. They want to pay for it to be done the cheap way. And frankly, a lot of a lot of my clients, policyholders, whether they're residential or commercial, commercial is probably the worst, right? They just want to put it together as cheap as possible sometimes. And that's not the answer because you're reducing the value of your estimate. So I think being able to combine those two things has really lent itself well to being able to continue to do property insurance work and grow that. Yeah, we see it oftentimes too. It's very difficult during an insurance claim process and it takes a long time to get things moving when you're working with the insurance companies on this, you know, when something like this types of hap- types of things happen. So then can you talk to us, you know, top level when we're going to file a claim or looking to work with the insurance company, what does the process look like at the top level if something happens? 
So at the top level, I think most people have kind of the same appreciation, which is something happens, you call, you file your claim, they send someone out, they issue a payment, or they don't. The problem is that very surface level analysis and explanation that I just gave is basically the totality of most people's understanding of the process. And that's wild because we deal with homeowners as well, but we also deal with very sophisticated real estate investors who should know better, but they've been so well conditioned to not accept or to accept no as an answer, even when in their business life, they never accept no as an answer. Also, there's a certain level of conditioning that happens, which is if I underpay you substantially initially, then when I give you a little money later, you feel like a win, right? Again, you probably wouldn't fall for that if you were negotiating the purchase of a property, but for some reason you do when you're negotiating your insurance claim. So at the very top level, that's the beginning of it. What people don't realize is there are so many facets of your insurance policy, and there are so many facets of what have to be done and what entitlements you may have. What I explained earlier is just the very, very surface level. There's many, many layers below that. Yeah, I think part of it has to do with not everybody fully understands what goes into the insurance policies. And I think that's kind of where it ends, right? Because they're relying on the insurance companies to take a look at the policy and see what they can what they can do. And then they just they're just at the, in a sense, at the mercy of whatever the insurance companies come back and says to us. And so when you said, you know, we typically we are conditioned to accept their no's. Does that mean that we have the right or there's options for us to actually go back and fight for some other things that we potentially could that turn their nose into yeses? Absolutely. So at, at its very base, insurance is a contract. It's an agreement. If you and I make an agreement today to buy a property together, we're going to lay out what that looks like. Who's doing what? Who's contributing what funds? Who's contributing what labor if we need to fix it up and flip it? Or if we're actually going to manage it and bring it in, what are we doing, right? If you and I went into business or I went into business with anyone listening to this, we would lay out all of our obligations. That has been done in your insurance contract. It's been done for you and against your will and with no input by you, but it's been done. Right. So there's this whole list of obligations. And then on top of that, almost every state has additional legal obligations for the insurer and even the insured sometimes. So a no is not necessarily a no. That might be an unfair no in the context of the contract or your state's law. But if you accept it as a no, then it's the end of the discussion, right? Similarly, if you and I bought that property together and I told you, hey, I'm going to breach my agreement. You have a choice to make. You can try to work something out with me. You can sue me or you can walk away and let me do whatever I want to do. And I think that's the catch is when I say it that way, you're thinking to yourself two things. Well, I'm never going into business with him. And two, you're thinking I'm definitely not walking away if he breaches his agreement. But the majority of consumers in America, including investors, walk away when the insurance company breaches their agreement. You have a right, an absolute legal right in pretty much every state. I can't think of a state where you wouldn't have that right to enforce your contract of insurance against your insurance company. In some states, you even have a whole additional set of rights, which are known as bad faith. Can you share a little bit of what the bad faith talks about and discuss and what it is? Yeah. So the way I explain bad faith, because there's no one size fits all since Each state kind of has their own set of statutes and they have different standards, right? But the way I explain bad faith is at the end of the day, bad faith comes into two buckets. The insurance company didn't do something they were supposed to do, 
or the insurance company did something they weren't supposed to do, right? So not doing something they're supposed to do, maybe for instance, using Louisiana as an example, they have a certain amount of time to come out and look at the property. If they don't do that and they don't have a good reason for it, that would be bad faith in Louisiana. On the do something they're not supposed to do, in most states with bad faith statutes, it's illegal for an insurance company to make a misrepresentation in the adjustment of a claim, right? So if they call me up, after my my house burns down, let's say, and they say, well, you're not covered for fire, but I am, that would be a misrepresentation and would open them up to bad faith. Why do I care? What does that matter? Well, that's going to vary from state to state, except it does matter. So most states will provide either penalties or attorney's fees or both. So no matter how you cut that, and you could define penalties and attorney fees for hours, there's a financial incentive for you to enforce the contract and bring that bad faith claim. And there's a financial disincentive for them to behave the way they do. The problem is the numbers way out in their favor because so few people are conditioned to fight. They can still commit bad faith and still make money overall across all the claims, right? So it's really the incentive for you to bring the claim that you have to focus on. When a client comes to me and says, I want to bring this suit because I never want this insurance company to misbehave ever again, I say, well, that's a non-starter. They're going to do it, right? It doesn't matter how much we pop them for. We can go get them for millions of dollars and they are still going to do this again to someone else. So if that's the goal, it's the wrong motivation. But as as an investor, as a real estate professional, you should be looking at that financial incentive because anytime you have a loss that takes out of your bottom line, your goal should be to recoup from that. Yeah, perfect. Because I was going to ask, you know, what incentivizes them to actually commit these bad faiths, even though they're not supposed to do that? And so why do they continuously do that? But it's because of the financial incentives for them. Just like you said, they're able to recoup a lot of their losses by continuously doing this, even and one or two people who actually bring it to bring it forward and try to combat it. It's not going to really make or break them. And it's cyclical. We go through times where insurance companies seem to not be honoring their agreements. And then we go through times where they seem to be doing so. Unfortunately, the last time it really feels like on mass, the insurance companies were honoring their agreements was in the 90s. And there was an intentional decision made in the late 90s by one major insurance company to tighten up paying claims, to slow down paying claims, and to intentionally underpay claims. And one major insurance company made that intentional decision. It's well-documented. McKinsey and company taught them how to do it. And once they adopted all of that, unfortunately, then we suffered a financial crisis. And all of these insurance executives spread around. They were terminated. They had to go to other places. And that infected the majority of United States claims handling, unfortunately. So we're in one of those kind of negative places now. I don't know that it won't swing back around in another 10 years. But we're in a place where it has been institutionalized to delay claims, deny claims, and underpay claims. So in these cases where you're you need the insurance, something has happened and you're you're needing to go, you know, fight the insurance companies, do you need to always consult with a lawyer to take a look at what's within your legal rights? Yeah, I w- I can't think of a claim where I personally would not consult with a lawyer. And look, there's a saying like, you know, the lawyer that represents himself has a fool for a client, right? I had my own loss after Hurricane Ida recently. 
And I was smart enough to get someone else in my office to handle my claim. So I wouldn't be doing it myself. Right. So, I mean, at a minimum, I think people should take my advice and get someone that knows what they're doing to figure this out. Right. A good lawyer that actually practices in this area, if they see that you've been paid fairly and they see that you've been paid timely, they will tell you that and you will owe them no obligation. What you're really looking for is confirmation. If you think you've been treated fairly, great. I'm happy for you. Get someone to check it out. But I think most of the time, a good lawyer that really does this work will be able to identify underpayments or things that weren't done properly and be able to identify an additional financial incentive for you to continue on with that process. And so typically also, it takes quite some time to work with the insurance companies and go back and forth with them. You know, How long does it typically take to actually be able to recoup the losses that you've experienced? Yeah, it's all over the place, right? So when when we do get calls, and I think the larger the investor, almost the guiltier they are, right? They call and say, it's been 30 days since the storm and I'm hiring you because I want action. Say, well, we'll get you action and we'll get every penny we can out of the insurance company. But I don't want to lie to you and tell you it's going to be fast. It's not going to be fast. It's slow. With that said, we've had success, right? Right after Hurricane Ida, which was August 29th of 2021. I mean, I would say by... October 15th or so, we had had well over $100 million released for clients of ours from insurance funds. Well, that's fast. That's 45 days. That's not bad, right? But there are clients that have to be prepared to stick it out for a year or two. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yeah, got it. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, because of what's going on in the industry and, you know, have you have you had to de- deal with a lot of like insurance fraud as well? Yeah. So insurance fraud is a fascinating topic for a few reasons. So insurance fraud is real and it's real on both sides and it's not helping anyone on either side. The insurance fraud that you know of, that you think of is... You know, I laugh before any major disaster, there's the same graphic that circulates on Facebook, like, oh, before the storm, taking pictures of my stuff for my insurance. And it's like a picture of a bedroom. And then there's all these old fake clip arts of like big jewels and diamonds and, you know, and rings, right? That's the typical insurance fraud that we hear about. Arson is another one, but the main one is saying, hey, I have this stuff. It's really expensive. It was destroyed. I'd like you to pay for it. And then the stuff never existed, right? Or the stuff's perfectly safe and it's hidden somewhere. That's kind of the prototypical insurance fraud. In almost every state, I would assume it's a felony. It's also bad overall for insurance. And and more importantly, I think what bothers me is it gives insurance companies an excuse to claim insurance fraud exists. I was always that kid that like got mad in school when the whole class got punished for like one person acting out, right? So I think I still have that mindset. So I'm like, stop getting us all in trouble. Like someone's watching. But the part of insurance fraud that people don't talk about 
and I think is equally as real is carrier side fraud. People don't think insurance companies can commit insurance fraud. That doesn't sound right to them. How can you steal from an insurance company if you are a company? Well, there's other types of fraud, right? So use Hurricane Sandy as an example. I'm amazed at how many people don't realize this. It was discovered that engineers were copying and pasting reports without even going to the properties that carriers were then using to deny the claims. An engineer actually got walked out of their office in handcuffs at one point. This got so bad. Congress created a congressional committee to go review these claims, create a fund, and reopen these claims. This was a massive black eye on the insurance industry. But again, we've all been conditioned to accept what the insurance company tells us. So despite this massive black eye for the insurance company, no one talks about carrier-side fraud. But carrier-side fraud absolutely exists. And it's one of the things we do for our clients as kind of an included service is we keep an eye out for fraud. And if we spot fraud, we'll do a couple of things. Obviously, we'll use it vis-a-vis the contractual and civil process to show that the insurance company is behaving unfairly, but we also sometimes will have to invoke the criminal process as well. Yeah. You know, we don't really hear too often, like it's in the news, but then it's not like very publicized. So the public isn't as aware of what's going on, especially when it's on the insurance side. Um, Just like you mentioned, it's not something that's well communicated out there that something like this is even possible on the insurance side. And it's devastating to the victims, you know, again, for an investor, the victimization and the damage is largely financial, right? Because that it's rooted is financial, but on an individual kind of micro basis, it causes joblessness, homelessness, suicide, divorce, like all these things are real effects of hurting someone, which is why these things are crimes, right? Because we realize that they're a massive detriment to society. So it's easy to gloss over, but it's really unfortunate because from where I sit, it's one of the worst things that happens to people that I care about. So is there anything that we can do upfront on the front end prior to getting into these contracts with insurance companies to protect ourselves in the case that something does happen and we need to actually go through these claims process? Absolutely. There's a few things. I'm really glad you asked that because it's really weird how we purchase insurance, right? If anyone listening to this would close their eyes for a second and think about the last property that they bought where they did no due diligence whatsoever, you know, give them a second. I think you're done because none of you bought a property without doing any due diligence, right? Even if you didn't see it because it was somewhere else or whatever, you did some due diligence on that. The reality is we do not do due diligence when we purchase insurance. It is silly. It's re- You do more due diligence when you go to the grocery store and decide which <laughs> orange you're going to pick out, right? Because at least you squeeze them and you're like, ah, this one's soft. This one's hard. I'm going to go with this one, right? You don't do that with your insurance at all. The vast majority of the people listening to this are thinking that I'm on crack and don't believe me. But next time you go purchase insurance, I want you to watch what's happening. They ask you how much coverage you want. You tell them. They print out something on a piece of paper usually. Sometimes they don't even do that. They just tell you. It shows you like three sets of premiums, three sets of deductibles, and three sets of coverage, right? And they're dollar figures. It doesn't say, well, this is excluded or that's included or you get these supplements. It's just numbers. You pick one, you pay. And then a couple of weeks later, they mail you the policy that actually says what you bought, right? It's crazy. It's like if you called Mercedes and said, I want to buy a car. And they said, okay, well, we can get you a car for one of these three prices. You bought it. And then later something showed up. You didn't know what color it was. You didn't know what model it was. You didn't know if you liked it, if you could drive it. What if it's a, what if you don't drive a stick shift and it's a manual? You have no idea, right? 
but we do this every day with insurance. So the first thing is be a good consumer and ask to see samples of the policy. They can give it to you. They will look at you like you're insane, but they'll look at you like you're insane because you're making them do work that they can do that they don't feel like doing. Okay. Because not a lot of people ask for something like that. Yeah. But you know, be different, right? Be crazy and ask to see what you're buying (laughs) first. Right. It's not a crazy request. It's not, but it sounds crazy. And, And your broker or agent will look at you like you were insane. Right. It's almost like what we're seeing with real estate agents right now. Things are popping up so fast and they're, they're getting bought so fast that real estate agents are like no longer having to do their jobs. Right. Brokers and agents are conditioned the exact same way. And they have not had to do their jobs for decades, but ask them to do their job. They can, they will love you for it because you're making them better at what they do because some of them don't even know how to get those policies, but they will figure it out. Read through it. If you don't understand it, get a lawyer to look at it. Even if that costs you a little bit of money, it's a really good investment because those policies are not going to change substantially from year to year. And now you know what you're doing. That's number one. Number two And I'm not really in this business, but I've seen this trend over the last few years. And I think it's fantastic. If you have larger properties, like big multifamily unit type things, especially apartments, anything commercial, maybe not as big a deal for kind of some single family homes that you're holding or whatever. See if there is a decent public adjuster or attorney like me that does pre-loss assessments. What does that mean? That means they're going to come look at your property, fully document your property, which is going to ignore about 90% of the problems or avoid, I should say, 90% of the problems that insurance companies create later. And how much is that going to cost you, right? Usually nothing. They're doing it for free because they want your business later if there's a loss. So you're almost like purchasing a second layer of free insurance, right? You go get a competent professional. They know your property. And then when you do have a loss, they just dust out the old file. They don't have to figure out, well, was that crack old or was that crack not? I have a picture of that crack from two years before the incident. It's an old crack. Oh, I don't have a picture of that crack. That's a new crack, right? So all that work is done for you. So that's the second thing that I think you can do that you don't even realize you can do. And what you really don't realize is these people want to do that work for you for free because they want to get your business later. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And yeah, there it saves them down the road. It saves you a lot of time down the road. But how do you even go about searching and finding a good property insurance attorney to help you out with something like this? And how do you know that they're an expert in this space and not just, you know, they just have a general overview or something? That's a great question. So Google sucks, right? And the internet is unfair and social media is even worse. You got to love it, right? Like, from home, I can develop a new business, make a decent living and kind of figure out a whole like economic structure for myself. And that wasn't possible, but it also makes people very open to deception. Like after every hurricane, I watch all the former like personal injury lawyers and divorce lawyers become storm lawyers. I don't even know what a storm lawyer is. Like, do they have superpowers? You know, I I don't know, but They're all storm lawyers suddenly, or they're disaster lawyers, right? And so you really do have to look at history. I mean, I guess you can avoid all that and call me. I'm joking, but find someone that you like, that you trust, actually talk to them, find out if they know what they're doing, okay? A lot of these places, the way the economics of law firms work, you're going to go to an intake center. You're not going to get to do that. 
insist anyway, ask the question. The question will go up the chain. And if you're getting to a real lawyer that knows what they're talking about, they'll have that conversation with you. But you interview your lawyer, just like you interview your accountant or any other professional you're going to trust, because you do need to make sure they know what they're doing. So don't just Google shop. Don't just find the person that ranks number one. By the way, half of those rankings, like you just listed off all these accolades and stuff. That's cool. I know competitors of mine that have 30, 40, 50 more accolades that you can buy online, right? So you can buy credibility. Like that's the world we live in now. If you want to be credible, you buy credibility. I like cringe. Like I realize I'm sitting on this podcast and I have no idea how I ended up here. And I realize maybe someone paid you to take me, you know, I mean, I'm joking, I hope, but nevertheless, like that was not the case. (laughs) Okay, good. So like credibility is purchasable, right? So make sure you actually do what I call a knowledge check. You know, I wrote a book. Is it beautiful? No. Does it have a lot of grammar mistakes? Yes. It has some content and the content's helpful. And that's really nice, right? So make sure you're actually talking to someone that knows what they're doing. No, that's fantastic. Um, Yeah, definitely. Google is bias in some aspects as you're like searching it up. And so, you know, maybe not take a look at the first page on whatever pops up, maybe scroll a couple pages down and see what you can find as well. So for you, you know, as someone who's looking at their property insurance and they're taking a look at it, they have, you know, general sense of what they're looking for, but as they're deep diving into it, you know, what are some of the top areas or top sections that they should particularly pay attention to? In terms of the policy itself or? Yeah. In terms of the policy itself. Yeah. So what's covered, right? That sounds simple. That's not that simple. So first of all, we, you all know this kind of generally, but you've never, but if you haven't really sat down with the policy, you don't realize this acutely. Policies are really confusing to read because it's kind of like a puzzle that you have to like cut into a million pieces and put back together because what the policy will say is all these things. And then it's got all these endorsements behind it that say, oh, amend that prior paragraph to say this instead of that. Amend that prior paragraph to say this instead of that. Delete that sentence. Add this sentence, right? So you almost really, if you were doing a good job, would take your policy, a black marker, like scissors and glue, and take all those endorsements and kind of do whatever they say, right? And then you'd end up with a policy. It's Don't ask me why we can't just give consumers policies that they can read. But nevertheless, so you want to figure out what's covered. Again, not that simple, but similarly to what's covered, you want to figure out what's excluded. That's number one. Number two is you want to look for supplemental coverages. People don't realize that they usually have more coverage than what is shown on their declaration page. I'll give you an example. We represented a church we were able to recover like, I want to say seven or 8 million under the policy for them. As far as like what damage they had to their structure, we were able to recover another 2.7 million in supplemental coverages for them that were not on their declarations page. They're like buried in the policy. Like, Oh, you can get 250,000 for converting all the data from one computer system to another. Well, (laughs) there you go. Right. Oh, for, you know, sound systems, if you have to recalibrate them, you can get another 50,000. So all these things were like hidden in the policy. And by the way, you could probably guess the answer to this. The adjuster never called us and told us these things were available to us, right? We had to find them. We had to assert we were owed them. And in fact, half of the time, the adjuster told us we didn't have that coverage. And then we had to send them back their policy with the highlighted language and be like, why does this not apply, right? And that's not rocket science, right? And you could probably sit there and say, well, this guy's kind of goofy. He's not that smart. You know, like I could do this myself and you might be able to, and it's kind of embarrassing 
that some of the things we do are so low level. We also do some really high level things like argue about anti-concurrent causation and what those things mean, right? But even at at its fundamental level, 90% of the problem is that no one, neither you nor the insurance company is actually reading the contract between each other. So if you read it, you'll already have a leg up. Oh, Galen, thank you so much for sharing all of that knowledge. And really, I mean, it's really just getting educated and trying to figure out what you're buying before you buy it. And, you know, and if, like you said, if you don't really understand it, because there's a lot of legal terms in there, the the insurance policies, they don't make it easy to take a look at it and understand what you're actually being covered for. So yeah, definitely need to consult with another person who has the expertise who might be able to help you, especially on the front end to avoid situations, you know, that you want to avoid down the road. So Galen, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you're doing in this space and, you know, reach out if they have some more questions, where's the best place that they can go? So we're on, uh, we're on the internet, obviously just Google us. No, uh, you can go to insuranceclaimhq.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook. We will respond to you on those things, Twitter as well. And as soon as we can get the bar association to step into the new century, we should be on TikTok in a matter of a couple of weeks and we'll have some cool informational videos for you and stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gilin. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.